Listeners, if you love conspiracy theories, you can find our entire catalog of episodes, plus new ones each week, free and only on Spotify. That's hundreds of episodes you won't hear anywhere else, all in one place. All you have to do is download the Spotify app for free and follow Conspiracy Theories to ensure you don't miss out on any of the world's craziest controversies and cover-ups. Thanks for listening to Conspiracy Theories, and we'll see you on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. This year has gone by so quickly. So much has happened. I mean, I have already completely reconstructed the plumbing in my house. Luckily, not myself. I had help. And you know, with everything going on in life, sometimes it's important to slow down. Take a minute to reflect and make adjustments for the rest of the year ahead. And if you need a little help with that, therapy is an excellent option. I have loved therapy so much, in part because of the coping mechanisms it's given me. It's not just a place to share my feelings about my life or what's going on. I've learned ways to address my own mental habits so that I can handle what I'm doing even better. I've learned that self-care is not selfish, and it's really made a big difference in my life. If you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, and all you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get started. Plus, you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. So take a moment for yourself. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash conspiracy. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 platinum jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. In 1985, a BBC crew interviewed Marilyn Monroe's housekeeper, Eunice Murray, for a documentary about the Hollywood starlet's mysterious death. Murray told them the same story she told the police in 1962. She woke up at 3 a.m. and noticed Marilyn's bedroom was locked, with the lights still on. She called Marilyn's psychiatrist, who broke in through the window and found her lying in bed motionless, dead from an apparent overdose on prescription pills. The coroner's autopsy report would confirm the cause of death, probable suicide. But after the cameras were turned off and the crew began to clear out, Murray said something that stunned the interviewers, quote, why, at my age, do I still have to cover this thing up? End quote. 
Luckily, the sound recorder was still rolling. The tape captured her admitting something that everyone involved had denied for over 20 years. Former Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy had been at Marilyn's house on the evening she died. Murray said, quote, It became so sticky that the protectors of Robert Kennedy, you know, had to step in and protect him, end quote. What did she mean by protect him? Was the Kennedy family involved in Marilyn Monroe's death? And why change her story after more than 20 years? Was Eunice Murray finally telling the truth after decades of secrecy? Or did she have ulterior motives? Conspiracy? Maybe. Coincidence? Maybe. Complicated? Absolutely. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, the podcast where we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. If you want to listen to previous episodes, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory or on our website, parcast.com. And if you enjoy the show, don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps us. I'm Carter Roy. I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. Last week, we discussed the official story of Marilyn Monroe's death on August 4th, 1962. The story given to the police the morning afterwards. Marilyn Monroe was one of the brightest Hollywood stars of her time, until her career was cut short by her sudden death at age 36. After years of depression, suicide attempts, and drug abuse, she overdosed on barbiturates in an apparent suicide. But in the years since, an alarming amount of evidence has surfaced that suggests her death wasn't, in fact, a suicide. Today, we'll be looking at three of the most prominent conspiracy theories about what actually happened to Marilyn Monroe. In our first conspiracy theory, we'll discuss whether Marilyn's death was an accidental overdose, which was staged as a suicide by her doctors to protect themselves from accusations of malpractice. Next, we'll look at a related conspiracy theory. Marilyn was murdered as a part of a communist conspiracy to spy on the Kennedys. And finally, we'll talk about the shocking conspiracy theory that Bobby Kennedy arranged Marilyn Monroe's murder to protect his family's reputation. There's a lot to follow here, so let's quickly recap the official version of events before we get into the alternative theories. On August 4, 1962, Marilyn spent most of the afternoon in her room after having an argument with her friend and publicist Pat Newcomb in the morning. Newcomb stayed at the house for the rest of the afternoon. At about 3 or 4 p.m., Marilyn's housekeeper, Eunice Murray, called over her psychiatrist, Dr. Ralph Greenson. She claims she called him because she was troubled by Marilyn's request for an oxygen treatment, even though oxygen was a well-known hangover cure at the time. Dr. Greenson arrived around three or four. Pat Newcomb left. 
and Greenson spoke to Marilyn in her room for about an hour. Greenson left, asking Murray to stay at Marilyn's house overnight and keep an eye on her. Marilyn took a telephone into her room and spent the night making calls to friends and acquaintances. Everyone she spoke to agreed she didn't sound drugged or depressed, and she gave no indication she was considering suicide. At around 10 p.m., she set the receiver down during a call and never returned. Around 10.30, she made one last call to Peter Lawford, her friend and the husband of Patricia Kennedy. During the call, she apparently drifted into unconsciousness and stopped responding. At either midnight or 3 a.m., she changed her story later in the morning. Eunice Murray woke up and noticed the light in Marilyn's room was still on, but she wasn't responding. She called Dr. Greenson, who broke in through the bedroom window and found Marilyn lying dead, clutching the telephone next to empty pill bottles of a prescription sedative called Nembutal and a nearly empty bottle of another sedative, chloral hydrate. Greenson called Marilyn's physician, Dr. Hyman Engelberg, who came over and officially pronounced her dead. At 4.25 a.m., the police were called. Murray, Greenson, and Engelberg initially told investigator Jack Clemens that Marilyn's body had been found at midnight, creating a four-hour gap between discovering the body and calling the police that none of them could account for. Clemens was relieved by Sergeant Marvin Ianone, who sealed up the house until the full investigative force arrived at about 5.30. When the investigators questioned them later that morning, Murray, Greenson, and Engelberg all changed their stories to say that Marilyn's body hadn't been discovered until 3 a.m. Inconsistencies in the forensic evidence and the witnesses' stories baffled the police. But it did appear to be a suicide, so they held off on opening an official investigation until the coroner confirmed the cause of death. The coroner's investigation went on for less than a week, during which they interviewed none of the key witnesses except for Maryland's psychoanalyst, Dr. Ralph Greenson. After speaking with Dr. Greenson, the deputy DA leading the investigation said he was completely convinced that Maryland's death was not a suicide. The medical examiners performing the autopsy also believed the death couldn't have been a suicide. But despite those findings, the coroner officially ruled the cause of death as a probable suicide. Over the past five decades, even more evidence has emerged to suggest that Marilyn's death was not, in fact, a suicide. There have been repeated calls to reopen the investigation into Maryland's death, some as recent as 2002. This should not be a closed case. It should be an open case by the DA. There's too much, too many uh, people, too much overwhelming evidence that proves that this was not a suicide. And I think that Maryland needs closure. The difficulty with finding the truth is that nearly all the key figures involved in Marilyn's death are now dead themselves, and the statements they gave during their lifetimes were often contradictory. Many of the witnesses who have spoken out against the official story have been discredited as liars, fame seekers, and conspiracy theorists, despite evidence that they might be telling the truth. And many of the people who upheld the official story had their own hidden agendas. 
it was in their best interest to end the inquiry into Marilyn's death as quickly as possible. So who can we trust? Which version of the facts is the most reliable? Since the conspiracy theories we're talking about are rooted in a lot of actual evidence and testimony that surfaced after the official investigation ended, we'll be careful to distinguish between what's fact and what's speculation as we work through the stories. We'll also take time to establish the credibility of witnesses, their professional qualifications, and their possible ulterior motives as objectively as possible. Before jumping into the different theories, let's give them some background by looking at the most reliable physical evidence we have, the autopsy. On the morning of August 5, 1962, Marilyn Monroe's body was taken to the L.A. County morgue. The autopsy was assigned to Deputy Medical Examiner Dr. Thomas Naguchi, a well-respected pathologist who later became the president of the American National Association of Medical Examiners. Assisting him was Lionel Grandison, a 22-year-old coroner's aide. Just months after Marilyn's autopsy, he was sentenced to six months in jail for using a credit card stolen from a corpse. He later claimed he'd been set up because of his questions about the investigation into Marilyn's death. Overseeing the investigation was coroner Dr. Kerfee. He had over 20 years of experience as a medical examiner. Four years earlier, he had been investigated by a grand jury for misconduct due to his controversial autopsy procedures. But the charges were dropped. The coroner's inquest was also overseen by Deputy District Attorney John Minor, who was a trained forensic psychiatrist and the chief of the DA's medical legal section. He was known for assessing possible suicides and attended over 5,000 autopsies during his tenure. The initial coroner's report, filed by Noguchi and Grandison, noted bruises on Marilyn's arms, legs, and hip, which suggested violence. Not only were those bruises never investigated, but according to Grandison, this page of the report disappeared from the file entirely during the course of the inquiry. Another curiosity was the dual lividity on the body. As blood settles in the hours after death, bruise-like splotches, known as lividity, appear on the parts of the body closest to the ground. Dual lividity is when those splotches appear on two different sides of the body. This generally points to the fact that the body was moved during the approximately four hours after death. Marilyn had lividity on both her back and stomach, suggesting that she died on her back and was later moved to the face-down position investigators found her in. But although this was noted in the autopsy report, it was never examined by the police as possible evidence of foul play. Things became even stranger once they examined her internal organs. As expected, her blood and liver samples confirmed that she had died of an overdose of nembutol and chloral hydrate. But there was no pill residue anywhere in her digestive system. Her stomach was completely empty. If she had consumed dozens of pills at once, there should have been completely undissolved pills left in her stomach, since she would have died before her stomach could digest them all. Initial analysis of the organs found that the concentration of Nembutal in her blood and liver suggested that the drug had been ingested hours before she died. 
She could have been taking pills all day long, giving them time to absorb and dissolve long before her organs stopped working. But Marilyn's friends said she was completely lucid on the phone that night. If she had already taken the fatal quantity of sedatives that was found in her blood, she almost certainly would have been slurring her words or acting strangely. Another possibility is that she had taken some pills throughout the day, as she was prone to do, but the fatal dose was administered in a different way, either an injection or an enema. Another oddity is that there was no pear-like smell coming from her mouth or digestive tract. This distinctive smell is a telltale sign of chloral hydrate when it's consumed orally, but there's no smell when chloral hydrate is ingested by other means. This also suggests that the chloral hydrate in her system didn't come from pills. There were no needle marks found on Marilyn's body during the examination, although needle marks are notoriously difficult to spot and the examiners couldn't conclusively rule out an injection. But because of inflammation in her colon and because of her known history of using enemas, Miner and Noguchi decided that an enema was the most likely form of administering the drugs. Noguchi specifically requested a toxicology report on samples from the kidney, stomach, urine, and intestines. This would have proven beyond any doubt that the drugs in her system weren't consumed orally. But when the report came back from the laboratory at the UCLA School of Medicine, he found that none of those samples had been analyzed. When he asked the lab what had happened, he found that the samples he had prepared had mysteriously vanished. In the entire history of L.A. County, this was the first time organ samples had disappeared from the lab. How could this have happened? Maybe the samples were stolen by someone with access to the laboratory. Maybe by one of Marilyn's obsessed fans, or a tabloid journalist who thought the toxicology results could make a sensational cover story. Or perhaps they were stolen by Marilyn's psychoanalyst and UCLA faculty member, Dr. Ralph Greenson. That brings us to our first conspiracy theory. Marilyn Monroe accidentally overdosed on prescription medications, and her doctors, Ralph Greenson and Hyman Engelberg, covered it up to protect their reputations. This theory is the closest to the official story. Proponents of this theory generally agree with the established timeline of what happened on August 4th, but with the addition of one key detail. When Dr. Greenson left Marilyn's house at around 5 p.m., he asked Eunice Murray to give Marilyn a chloral hydrate enema to calm her down. This wouldn't have been strange, because enemas were very popular with Hollywood celebrities at the time, and Marilyn had a history of using them regularly. Greenson had already prescribed her chloral hydrate pills, so the choice of drug wouldn't be unusual either. The problem is that, unbeknownst to Greenson, Marilyn's physician, Dr. Engelberg, had prescribed her Nembutal just a day earlier. The two doctors had been working together to wean Marilyn off her barbiturate addiction. A few weeks earlier, Greenson had asked Engelberg not to prescribe her any Nembutal without consulting him first. But the very day before Marilyn's death, she told Dr. Engelberg that Greenson said it was all right to prescribe her Nembutal again. Unthinkingly, Engelberg wrote her a prescription without checking in with Greenson first. 
At the time, Engelberg was going through a difficult separation with his wife, and it's likely he was too distracted by his personal problems to think clearly about whether Marilyn's words should be trusted. But this momentary lapse in judgment would have devastating effects. Chloral hydrate interferes with the body's ability to produce the enzymes that metabolize Nembutal. When the two drugs are taken together, Nembutal can't be metabolized quickly enough, leading to a potentially lethal buildup of Nembutal in the blood and liver. Presumably, Murray administered the chloral hydrate enema at around 10 p.m. Around 10 or 10.30, Marilyn drifted into unconsciousness. When Murray got up around midnight and realized what had happened, she called Dr. Greenson. But by the time he arrived, it was too late. Marilyn was dead. Greenson called Engelberg and told him to come over immediately. Their failure to keep track of Marilyn's prescriptions could result in malpractice charges and end both their careers. But if the death looked like a suicide, they could maintain that she took the fatal combination of medications on purpose despite being warned not to take the two drugs together. When Engelberg arrived, they called Mickey Rudin, who was Marilyn's lawyer as well as Dr. Greenson's brother-in-law. Rudin later recalled that after he arrived, Greenson exclaimed, quote, Engelberg gave her a prescription I didn't know about, end quote. Together, they formulated a plan to stage Marilyn's death as a suicide. They laid her body out, emptied her pill bottles, locked the door from the inside, and then broke out through the window. The story was that Marilyn had locked herself in a room alone, and when Dr. Greenson eventually broke in through the window, he found her dead. Murray washed the bedsheets to hide the fact that they'd been soiled as a result of the enema. When Sergeant Clemens arrived, he did find Murray doing laundry. That's a strange thing to be doing right after your employer dies. Unless you're covering up evidence that you accidentally killed your employer. So far, this theory is logically sound. It explains a lot of curiosities in the autopsy, like the irritated colon and lack of pill residue in her stomach. And if her body had been moved while they were staging the crime scene, it explains why there was lividity on both sides of her body and why the police found her in such an unnatural, perfectly straight position. It also explains why Murray, Greenson, and Engelberg waited for hours to call the police after finding Marilyn's body, and why investigators thought their story seemed rehearsed. Dr. Greenson was a respected member of the medical community, so it's not impossible for him to have pressured the coroner's office into disregarding evidence that contradicted a suicide verdict. He was also a staff member at UCLA, where the organ samples disappeared from. But there's one hitch in this story. During the investigation, Greenson told Deputy DA John Minor that he emphatically didn't believe Marilyn had killed herself. Greenson played Minor a tape that Marilyn had made on her own tape recorder in the days before her death, where she discussed her plans for the future and sounded hopeful, not depressed. After listening to the tapes, Minor was fully convinced that Marilyn hadn't committed suicide. So, if Greenson was trying to cover up the death as a suicide, Why would he tell the investigators that he believed it wasn't a suicide? Maybe his conscience got to him. After Marilyn's death, Greenson was never the same. 
colleagues said that he became a bit strange. He stopped seeing patients and devoted himself to teaching and writing. He would battle depression for the rest of his life until his death in 1979. It's possible that the guilt had already set in, and he told the investigators it wasn't a suicide as a covert way of confessing. Aside from Greenson's sudden change of heart, there's nothing in the official story to contradict the theory that Greenson and Engelberg staged Marilyn's accidental overdose as a suicide. In fact, this theory actually answers many of the questions that arose from the official explanation. Just based on the facts we've discussed here, I'd give this theory's believability a 9 out of 10. But there's more evidence to discuss and more questions that remain unanswered. We haven't yet addressed a bombshell revelation that was uncovered 20 years after Marilyn's death. The testimony of ambulance drivers James Hall and Murray Leibowitz, who claimed to have watched Marilyn die with their own eyes. We'll return to our story in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life, at least not the ones you're thinking of, but they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home, like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. And now, let's continue the story. When Marilyn Monroe was found dead in the early hours of August 5th, 1962, the scene appeared to indicate that she'd overdosed on prescription pills while locked in her bedroom alone. But the forensics told a different story. And so did the ambulance drivers who were called to her house at about 10.30 p.m. the night before. Marilyn's neighbors told the police they had seen an ambulance outside her house at around 10 or 11 p.m. on the night of her death, around the confirmed time of death, but hours before her body was supposed to have been found. But the ambulance company that served the neighborhood, Schaefer Ambulance Service, denied sending an ambulance to Marilyn's residence that night. The police didn't press the matter further. They assumed the neighbors must have been misremembering. It's easy to see why. Why would the ambulance service lie about whether they'd send an ambulance to the scene or not? We can discuss their possible motivations later, but the simple truth is that they did lie. 20 years later, in 1982, a man named James Hall came forward claiming he was the ambulance driver called to the scene of Marilyn's death. Schaefer Ambulance Service initially denied that James Hall had ever been employed by the company. But Social Security and payroll records proved that he was, in fact, employed there in August 1962. There was even a photo published in a local newspaper that showed Hall responding to a crime scene a couple months earlier. Schaefer then reversed their original position and admitted they had sent an ambulance to Marilyn's house that night. But they named another man, Ken Hunter. 
as the driver. Unlike Hall, there were absolutely no records to suggest that Ken Hunter had worked for Schaefer in 1962. He was hired by the company in the 1970s. The DA's office refused to even interview Ken Hunter because if he provided any new evidence whatsoever, they would be obligated to open a full-scale inquiry into a death that had already been settled for two decades. They saw that as a waste of resources. But after all this time, James Hall was ready and willing to testify. Although the DA wouldn't hear him, he told his story under six separate polygraph tests administered by experts. He passed all of them. He also went under professional forensic hypnosis and recalled specific details he had consciously forgotten down to the floor plan of Maryland's guest cottage. He was also able to positively identify the four people he saw at the scene. Polygraph tests and hypnosis aren't always reliable. And since this was all done unofficially, it's totally possible that he received some assistance identifying the people at the scene. Uh, Statements could have been corroborated by the co-worker he named as his attendant that night, Murray Leibowitz. But Leibowitz was nowhere to be found. He had moved out of town and changed his name shortly after Marilyn's death in 1962. It took years for Leibowitz to be located. And when the press finally caught up with him in 1985, he refused to talk at all, simply saying, quote, I don't want to be involved in this, end quote. But in 1993, Leibowitz finally gave in and admitted that he had been on the scene when Marilyn Monroe died. The account he gave corroborated Hall's account. What could they have possibly seen that was so sensitive they refused to talk about it for decades? Why would Leibowitz feel compelled to move and change his name? And why did Schaefer Ambulance Service go to such great lengths to hide what their employees saw? Well, this brings us to conspiracy theory number two. Marilyn Monroe was murdered as part of a communist conspiracy involving her doctors and housekeeper. Before we get into what exactly the ambulance drivers saw, let's start at the beginning. Long before Greenson, Engelberg, and Eunice Murray were associated with Marilyn Monroe, they knew each other from somewhere else, the Communist Party. Records show that not only were Greenson and Engelberg both active Communist Party members, but they had served together on the party's doctor's professional group committee, and Murray's husband, John Murray, had served with Greenson on the party's arts, sciences, and professions council. It's important to note that, although a very small faction of the Communist Party was involved in espionage, the vast majority of members were normal, law-abiding citizens. The anti-communist crusades of Senator Joseph McCarthy and the House Un-American Activities Committee pushed the party underground during the 50s. But before that, they were a fairly mainstream political group. But Greenson wasn't any casual run-of-the-mill communist, according to Murray's son-in-law, Norman Jeffries, as well as an FBI agent interviewed by one of Marilyn Monroe's biographers. Greenson was involved in the Communist International, 
a Russian revolutionary group promoting a world communist government before its dissolution in 1943. It's difficult to verify that information because 40 pages of Greenson's FBI dossier are still being withheld from the public under an internal security ruling. But the very fact that Greenson has a lengthy FBI dossier that's being withheld for security purposes points to the fact that he might have been involved in something deeper than weekly Communist Party meetings. We've mentioned before that Dr. Greenson was the brother-in-law of Marilyn's lawyer, Mickey Rudin. Before Greenson started treating Marilyn, he'd already heard from his brother-in-law that Marilyn was having an affair with JFK. It's not out of line to suggest that Greenson jumped at the chance to treat Marilyn because he was hoping to get information out of her that might damage the Kennedys. It's not impossible, but it's far from a proven fact. We do know that Greenson crossed a lot of ethical boundaries in his treatment of Marilyn. He held therapy sessions at his own house and often invited her to stay for dinner with his family. Their doctor-patient relationship wasn't just unorthodox. It was a huge breach of the professional code of conduct Greenson laid out in his own psychoanalysis textbook. Marilyn had a lonely and unstable upbringing, and she had three failed marriages behind her. Maybe he thought it would help to provide her with a sense of family and stability, even if it crossed a few professional lines. Or maybe he was trying to gain her trust for other reasons. At one of these family dinners she stayed for in early 1962, Marilyn mentioned that she was going to be attending a going-away party for Bobby Kennedy, who was leaving on a trip to Asia. Marilyn and Bobby might have met before through Marilyn's association with JFK and with their brother-in-law, Peter Lawford, but they'd never spent any real time together. Marilyn was worried she didn't know enough about politics and current events to keep up a conversation with him. Dr. Greenson's son recalled that his father helped her by having her write down a list of conversation topics to ask him about all specific political matters, including the House Un-American Activities Committee, civil rights, U.S. involvement in Vietnam. Okay, to be fair, that does sound like something a communist spy would do. But Bobby Kennedy loved to talk politics. It's entirely possible that he really was just trying to help her impress him. There's also the fact that Greenson is the one who recruited his comrades Dr. Engelberg and Eunice Murray as Marilyn's physician and housekeeper. It makes sense that he'd refer trusted friends to his patient. Again, typical Communist Party members were normal, everyday people, not dangerous spies. True. But Marilyn never asked Greenson to find her a housekeeper. He hired Murray without so much as asking Marilyn beforehand. And, as we mentioned last week, Murray wasn't just a housekeeper. She was a trained psychiatric nurse. Even if Greenson did recruit Murray to keep an eye on Marilyn's mental state, that doesn't mean he did it for nefarious reasons. Marilyn had a history of drug abuse and suicide attempts. It's no surprise he'd want someone looking after her at home. But there's another reason Greenson might have wanted someone keeping tabs on what happened at Marilyn's house. It's where she kept her diary, her so-called book of secrets. Most of the conspiracy theories surrounding Marilyn's supposed murder revolve around this diary. She was known for keeping notes on conversations she had with friends and acquaintances, including the Kennedy brothers, conversations that often concerned sensitive matters of national security. 
a CIA document from August 3, 1962, the day before Marilyn's death, confirms that her diary mentioned conversations about Cuban crime bosses and plans by the CIA to assassinate Fidel Castro. It also confirmed that she had recently threatened to reveal what she knew in a press conference in retaliation for her abandonment by the Kennedys. Let's imagine that Greenson, Engelberg, and Murray actually were involved in a communist plot to get dirt on the Kennedys. That diary was the holy grail of blackmail material. If they got their hands on it, they'd have a huge amount of leverage to hold over the president himself. But if Marilyn went public with it, all that leverage would be gone. It was of the utmost importance that they keep Marilyn quiet until the time was right. Compelling theory. But how does it fit with the evidence? Let's look at an alternative version of what might have happened on August 4th, 1962, the day of Marilyn's death. The clearest account we have of the afternoon of August 4th comes from Norman Jeffries, Murray's son-in-law, who'd been hired to remodel Marilyn's house. He was at the house the entire day, and he was still there when police arrived the next morning. However, Murray claimed that she'd called him to come over after they'd already found Marilyn's body, so he was never questioned by the police. But in 1993, Jeffries, who by then was terminally ill and wheelchair-bound, finally broke his silence. He had nothing to lose or gain from lying about the circumstances of Marilyn's death any longer. As he put it, quote, I guess they can't very well electrocute me in a wheelchair, end quote. From the story Jeffries told, it's unlikely he would have received the death penalty for his small involvement in Marilyn's death, but it's telling that someone used that threat to scare him into keeping his mouth shut for decades. According to Jeffries, Marilyn had been growing suspicious of Murray and Greenson's motives in the weeks before her death. On the afternoon of August 4th, Marilyn told Murray that she was dismissed, and she wanted her gone by the end of the day. Murray called Greenson in a panic. Murray's official explanation for calling Greenson was that she was alarmed by Marilyn's request for oxygen. That story's hard to believe, since she and Greenson would have both known that oxygen was a popular hangover cure at the time. It makes far more sense that Murray and Greenson might have been alarmed by Marilyn's sudden dismissal of Murray. She must have discovered their secret espionage. Or maybe they were concerned about Marilyn's mental state because she was exhibiting paranoia about her closest associates. Either way, Greenson told Murray that he'd be over later. But according to Jeffries, at around 3 or 4 p.m., they had unexpected visitors, Bobby Kennedy and Peter Lawford. Initially, all the key witnesses denied that Bobby Kennedy had been in Los Angeles at all that weekend, but eyewitness accounts and helicopter records eventually proved he had, in fact, flown into town on the afternoon of August 4th. And his presence at Maryland's house that afternoon is corroborated by surveillance tapes recorded by private investigator Fred Otash. Otash was a former police officer who had made a new career for himself as one of the most popular private investigators in Hollywood. He was hired, separately, by union leader Jimmy Hoffa, Peter Lawford, and Marilyn herself to bug Marilyn's house. In 1985, 
Otash revealed what he heard on the tapes in interviews with 2020 and the Los Angeles Times. Since then, several people have listened to his tapes and confirmed his account of what was recorded. By the time Otash spoke about Marilyn's death, he was retired and wealthy. He said he'd stayed silent because, quote, I didn't see any purpose in being involved, but I feel it's time for the truth to come out. I'm not getting paid. I'm not writing a book. I'm not making a point, end quote. We're going to assume Otash's statements are true, since he had nothing to lose or gain from revealing what he knew about Marilyn's death. According to Otash's tape, Bobby and Lawford's visit to Marilyn's house was anything but friendly. They told Murray and Jeffries to leave, and then the argument began. There are three voices on the surveillance tape. First, Marilyn airing her grievances with Bobby, who had cut off all contact with her weeks earlier with no explanation. She was screaming, quote, I feel passed around. I feel used. I feel like a piece of meat, end quote. The second voice was Bobby Kennedy repeatedly asking her, quote, where is it? Where the hell is it? I have to have it, end quote. He was presumably talking about her diary, where she kept notes of conversations she'd had with both Bobby and John F. Kennedy about matters of national security. The third voice was Lawford, who was simply telling the other two to calm down. The argument grew more heated until there was a loud banging sound, followed by Marilyn screaming and telling them to leave. If Marilyn was injured during her altercation with Bobby, that would explain the bruises noted in the autopsy report. Murray and Jeffries came home about an hour later, and Bobby and Lawford were gone. Marilyn wouldn't tell them what had happened, but she was hysterical. Murray called Greenson again, and he said he'd be right over. According to Jeffries, when Greenson arrived, Marilyn told him that she decided to stop seeing him for therapy. They spoke in her bedroom for about an hour, and then Greenson left, but not before telling Murray that she should spend the rest of the night there and keep an eye on Marilyn. Marilyn was threatening to reveal her diary to the public. She had fired Greenson and Murray, and now the Kennedys were poking around the house. If they wanted that diary, this was their last chance to get it. Proponents of this theory are unsure about the next few hours of the night's timeline, but they speculate that at some point in the night, Murray sedated Marilyn with a chloral hydrate enema, as mentioned earlier. She then broke into Marilyn's file cabinet in the guest cottage to search for the diary. According to Jeffries, at around 10.30, Murray saw Marilyn slumped over, unconscious on the bed in the guesthouse, clutching the telephone. But when and how did Marilyn get into the guesthouse? She must have stumbled over there after hearing Murray searching around. But when Murray saw Marilyn lying there unconscious, she called an ambulance in a panic. Now here's what the ambulance driver, James Hall, remembers about that night. They arrived at Marilyn's residence a little after 10.30, and a hysterical woman he identified as Pat Newcomb led them to the guest cottage, where Marilyn was lying on the bed, unconscious. There was another man there, identified as Peter Lawford. Marilyn's last phone call, a little before 10.30, was to Lawford, who lived nearby. Lawford denied going to her house that night, but after Marilyn's alarming call, 
Ian Newcomb, who was at his house for a dinner party, could have rushed over to check on her. James Hall and his attendant, Marie Leibowitz, placed Marilyn on the floor and began to revive her with a resuscitator. They had almost brought her back to consciousness, but then a man with a big black doctor's bag arrived, told them he was a doctor, and instructed them to remove the resuscitator and perform CPR instead. That man was later identified as Dr. Greenson. Hall was surprised because the resuscitator was working, but ambulance drivers are trained to never argue with a doctor during an emergency. They did as they were told. Greenson pulled out a syringe, filled it with a brown liquid, and injected it into her heart. Hall assumed at the time that the liquid in the syringe was adrenaline. Injecting adrenaline into the heart is a common treatment for overdose victims. But adrenaline is colorless before being exposed to air. If the liquid was brown, as Hall remembered, it must have been something else. Like Nembutal, which is brown in liquid form. But on the other hand, adrenaline often comes in brown tinted glass vials. Maybe he just misremembered the liquid as brown. Mm, Fair enough. But whatever was in the syringe, what happened next was shocking. Greenson put the needle into Marilyn's heart at an incorrect angle, and her rib cracked. But instead of removing the needle, he leaned into it and injected the syringe into her heart anyway. Marilyn died immediately. Wow. If James Hall was telling the truth, that's pretty undeniable evidence that Greenson was personally responsible for Marilyn's death. And there's no reason to believe Hall was lying. His account is perfectly in line with the evidence. The time of death, the dual lividity from her body being moved from lying face up to the face down position police found her in. But the medical examiners didn't notice a needle mark near her heart. Needle marks are notoriously difficult to spot. Even though they didn't find a needle mark, there easily could have been one they missed. There was no mention of a cracked rib either. It's entirely possible that the medical examiners didn't notice a small fracture in the rib simply because they weren't looking for it. Their objective was just to confirm the method of her overdose. Unless the rib was visibly broken into pieces, there's no reason they would have done an x-ray to check for smaller fractures. Let's say Hall was telling the truth. There are two possibilities here. First, that Greenson really was trying to revive her with a shot of adrenaline. But he was a psychiatrist, not a physician, and he had no experience responding to medical emergencies like this. So he mangled the injection. The other possibility was that Greenson killed her on purpose with a final fatal injection of Nembutal. Perhaps he hadn't planned on killing Marilyn, but the night went terribly wrong. Perhaps Marilyn found him and Murray digging through her file cabinet, and they had to kill her to protect their secret. Perhaps he was afraid of what Marilyn might have said to Lawford and Newcomb on the phone that prompted them to come over. Or perhaps they hadn't yet found her diary, and he needed to distract Lawford and Newcomb to buy himself time to keep looking. Perhaps. But here's the thing about the diary. A few days after Marilyn's death... An assistant from the coroner's office came over to the house looking for her address book, hoping to find her next of kin. Eunice Murray readily gave him Marilyn's address book and her diary. If they'd literally killed to get their hands on that diary, 
Why would they hand it over so easily? Well, if Lawford and Newcomb, both closely involved with the Kennedy family, had seen Greenson stick a needle into Marilyn's heart and kill her, perhaps they might have used that to blackmail him and Murray into keeping quiet about the diary. Or perhaps Murray had even hoped the diary would throw suspicion for Marilyn's death onto the Kennedys if someone in the coroner's office read it. Or perhaps... Perhaps a psychiatrist, a housekeeper, and a physician weren't involved in a communist plot to steal government secrets from a movie star. A lot of this evidence is extremely compelling, but the underlying motivation isn't quite there. Why would these supposed spies kill for Marilyn's diary only to turn it over to the coroner a few days later. Why would Lawford and Newcomb lie about being at Marilyn's house when she died? And how would this ragtag trio of communists orchestrate a cover-up so elaborate and menacing it caused an ambulance attendant to go into hiding for decades? This theory's believability gets a 4 out of 10. Mm, You're right, this theory doesn't quite hold water. But we haven't put together all the pieces yet. There's more evidence we haven't discussed, and it all points to one conclusion. Marilyn Monroe was killed on the orders of the Kennedy family. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the Parcast Network. And now back to the story. One fact that's gone unexplained so far is that Bobby Kennedy visited Marilyn Monroe's house twice on the evening of her death in 1962. And then he denied that he was even in the city of Los Angeles that day, despite clear evidence to the contrary. We've already discussed some of this evidence. The helicopter records, the eyewitnesses that saw him at the house that afternoon. But there's even more to uncover. Here's our third conspiracy theory. Marilyn Monroe's murder was orchestrated by the Kennedy family to prevent her from exposing scandalous information. As you might recall from last week's episode, in the weeks before Marilyn's death, both John F. Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy had cut off all contact with Marilyn after FBI memos noted her as a state security risk. She knew a lot of sensitive information as a result of her affairs with the two high-profile brothers, and unwittingly, she had revealed some of it to a suspected communist who was under CIA surveillance. In response to this sudden rejection, Marilyn called the White House repeatedly and threatened to reveal everything she knew to the press. Obviously, that was a problem for the Kennedys. Not only would exposing her affairs with the two married men ruin their careers, but she also knew about matters of national security that would be dangerous if revealed to the public. Bobby Kennedy visited Marilyn's house on August 4th to convince her to stop calling the White House and let matters lie, and, as Otasha's security tapes suggest, to retrieve her diary before she could leak it to the press. As we've already discussed, Marilyn refused to give Bobby the diary, and a physical altercation occurred. When Bobby and Lawford left at around four, the situation was even worse than it was before. Pat Newcomb had been at Marilyn's house since that morning, and she was presumably still on the premises somewhere when the two men visited. By all accounts, she left about an hour after Bobby and Lawford did, at around five o'clock. It's unclear what Bobby did for the next few hours, but Lawford was throwing a dinner party that night, so he went back to his house. 
According to several of the other dinner guests, Pat Newcomb arrived at Lawford's house at about 9.30 p.m. and said Marilyn wasn't feeling well and wouldn't be able to make it. Back at Marilyn's house, Greenson briefly visited and left. Marilyn took a phone into her room and made some calls, and then, at around 10, she got up from a phone call and never returned. And here we've reached a crucial piece of evidence that was left out of the other theories. What distracted her from the phone call was the arrival of three visitors at the door. Bobby Kennedy and two other men, one of whom was carrying a black doctor's bag. This is documented by several eyewitness accounts. Neighbor Elizabeth Pollard and three of her friends saw three men approach Marilyn's house at around 9.30 or 10. They all recognized Bobby, but not the other men. Norman Jeffries also confirmed that Bobby and the two men he didn't recognize arrived at the house around 9.30 or 10. According to Jeffries, the men told him and Murray to leave. They briefly left to visit a neighbor's house. Jeffries didn't say who the neighbor was, and none of Marilyn's neighbors ever came forward and mentioned that Murray and Jeffries had been there that night. So it's impossible to verify that story. The only evidence we have of what happened between 10 and 10.30 that night comes from Otash's surveillance tapes. According to those who have heard the tapes, Marilyn followed Bobby and his two security guards into the guest cottage where she kept her file cabinet. Bobby instructed the two men to, quote, give her something to calm her down. And there was a smothering sound as Marilyn was apparently given sedatives either as an injection or through an enema. Crucially, this tape is not part of the public record, and we're relying on the word of a few people who claim to have listened to it. Coroner's aide Lionel Grandison, an anonymous government contact interviewed by writer Anthony Summers, and another writer named Raymond Strait. Otash himself never spoke on the record about this part of the night's timeline, so we may never be able to prove whether this part of the night was actually recorded or not. But it does fit with two key pieces of evidence that the official story couldn't explain. The eyewitness accounts of Bobby Kennedy and two other men arriving at around 10 p.m. and the large dose of drugs apparently administered by injection or enema. At a little before 10.30, Murray and Jeffries came back to the house. Murray saw Marilyn slumped over on the bed in the guest house, not moving, clutching the telephone. She panicked and called an ambulance, then called Dr. Greenson. Marilyn had just made her final call to Peter Lawford, whose dinner party was just wrapping up. Lawford said that when Marilyn called him, she sounded drugged and was slurring her words. She said, quote, Say goodbye to the president and say goodbye to yourself because you're a nice guy, end quote. The police took this as proof that she was planning on killing herself. But it also could have meant that she knew she was about to die from the drug she was forcibly given. After she said that final sentence, the line went silent and she stopped responding. Alarmed, Lawford called Marilyn's neighbors Joe and Dolores Narr, who had been at his party that night but left at around 10 p.m. Lawford asked if they would go over to Marilyn's house and check on her. Joe said he would get dressed and head over, but just minutes later, Lawford called him back and said he'd spoken to Marilyn's doctor and confirmed she was all right. There was no need for him to go over. 
Assuming the doctor he'd spoken to was Dr. Greenson, this would have been right after Greenson received the call from Murray that Marilyn was unconscious. It's not clear why Greenson would lie to Lawford. Unless for some reason he didn't want Lawford to come over to the house. Maybe he wanted to handle the situation on his own. Or maybe he was in on a plan that Lawford wasn't a part of. Either way, it didn't work. Shortly after 10.30, Lawford must have driven over to Marilyn's house, which was just a few minutes away. Pat Newcomb, who was still at Lawford's house after the dinner party, went with him. Ambulance driver James Hall said that when they arrived at around 10.30, Lawford and Newcomb were already there. Newcomb was hysterical. If there was a plan to kill Marilyn, she apparently knew nothing about it. As we said before, Hall saw Dr. Greenson thrust a syringe of an unidentified liquid into Marilyn's heart, snapping her rib and killing her instantly. But what happened next implies that if Greenson intended to kill her, he wasn't working alone. Before the ambulance left, Hall saw a police officer talking to Peter Lawford. This was strange, since police are never dispatched until the first responders call in and confirm that the victim is either dead or in transit to a hospital. Who called this officer to the scene, and why? That police officer was later identified as Sergeant Marvin Ianone, an intelligence division officer who was typically assigned as Bobby Kennedy's security detail when he was in town visiting Peter Lawford. Ianone wasn't supposed to be on duty that night, but he checked out a police car at some point before the garage closed at 11 that night. It's unclear whether he had previous knowledge that something would happen to Marilyn, or if he checked the car out and rushed over after he'd been told about the incident going on at Marilyn's. At around 10.45, Pat Newcomb called her friend and neighbor Natalie Jacobs, who was at a concert at the Hollywood Bowl. Newcomb, still hysterical, told her that Marilyn Monroe was dead. Jacobs didn't come forward with this information until 22 years later in 1984, but her memory of that phone call confirms that Marilyn was known to be dead by as early as 10.45, and that Newcomb was either there at the scene or had been told about Marilyn's death immediately after it happened. This is definitive proof that key witnesses, including Pat Newcomb, conspired to cover up the facts of Marilyn's death. After this evidence was uncovered in 1984, the DA said, quote, If we had known of Natalie Jacobs' statement at the time, it would have cast an entirely different light on our investigation, and perhaps we would have arrived at different conclusions, end quote. According to Norman Jeffries, at around midnight, Dr. Engelberg arrived and officially pronounced Marilyn dead. Around the same time, about a dozen men Jeffries identified as plainclothes police officers arrived. One of those officers was identified as Intelligence Division Captain James Hamilton. According to Jeffries, the officers and Dr. Engelberg worked together to formulate the suicide in a locked room plan. They moved Marilyn's body to the bedroom, placed the emptied pill bottles on her nightstand, locked the door, and broke out through the window. 
They invented the story that Murray had noticed a light in Marilyn's room at around midnight and called Greenson. Greenson came over and broke in through the window, and then Greenson called Engelberg, who arrived to pronounce Marilyn dead. At 12.10 a.m., a police officer named Lynn Franklin pulled over Lawford's car as he was speeding down Olympic Boulevard, a few miles away from Marilyn's house. In the passenger's seat was Dr. Greenson, and in the back seat was Bobby Kennedy. Lawford said he was driving Kennedy on urgent business. Franklin let them go without an official warning. He didn't want to risk a chewing out for holding up the attorney general. The question is, how credible is Officer Franklin? He was a decorated and well-respected member of the Beverly Hills Police Department for decades. But this revelation came later in life, when he'd taken to writing memoirs about his time on the force. Although he isn't known to have given false information in any of his books, it's not outside the realm of possibility that he made up this story about pulling over Peter Lawford to make his book more sensational. But it does line up with a timeline of evidence. At about 2 a.m., a helicopter was chartered to pick up a passenger, presumably Bobby Kennedy, from the beach outside Lawford's house. The helicopter records are corroborated by complaints from Lawford's neighbors that a helicopter taking off from his residence in the middle of the night had blown sand into their pool. Also around 2 a.m., Lawford arrived at the apartment of private investigator Fred Otash. According to Otash, Lawford told him that Marilyn was dead and that Bobby was being flown back to Northern California. He wanted Otash to go over to Marilyn's house and remove anything that might incriminate them. We can only imagine what must have been going through Otash's mind as he removed the three sets of surveillance bugs he had placed in Marilyn's house. It's unknown whether he also stumbled upon the bugs that had been placed there by the CIA and, according to some accounts, by the FBI, the Mafia, and 20th Century Fox. At some point in the night, Marilyn's lawyer, Mickey Rudin, came to the house as well. And then, at 4.25 a.m., the police were finally called. Sergeant Jack Clemens was the first officer to respond to the call at around 4.40. He spoke to Dr. Greenson, Dr. Engelberg, and Eunice Murray. Norman Jeffries was also there, but Murray claimed that she had called Jeffries to clean up the broken window after the body was discovered, so he wasn't interviewed. Within the next hour, Clemens was relieved by Captain James Hamilton, who, according to Jeffries, had already been at the scene just hours earlier with a dozen members of his intelligence division. Presumably, Hamilton was there to fix the flaws in the story before the full investigative unit arrived, because between Clemens' preliminary report and the statements given to the investigators later that morning, two key details changed. The witnesses shifted their timeline to get rid of those four unaccounted hours between discovering the body and calling the police. And a water glass was placed next to the pill bottles in Marilyn's bedroom. When the investigative unit arrived at 5.30 a.m., Mickey Rudin and Pat Newcomb were at the house along with the other witnesses. 
It's likely that they had still been on the premises when Sergeant Clemens arrived because he hadn't searched the house to see if anyone else was there. This would explain another strange detail. Newcomb was at the house that morning, but her car was not. The only logical explanation is that Lawford had driven her there the previous night and she had stayed behind all morning after Lawford left. But why implicate herself by staying behind? Uh, Everyone who saw Newcomb that weekend said she was absolutely hysterical with grief. The police had difficulty restraining her and she refused to leave the scene. Marilyn was one of Newcomb's best friends. It makes perfect sense that she'd be too distraught to leave her side, especially if she'd been there when she died the previous night. But there could have been another reason she refused to leave. She still hadn't found that diary. The police and Norman Jeffries did recall that Newcomb was hysterically searching through drawers and going into Marilyn's bedroom, even as the police tried to seal the room off. She'd stayed over at the house on Friday night, so everyone assumed she was looking for something she'd left behind. But it's also possible she was looking for Marilyn's diary, the little book of secrets Marilyn had been killed to protect. Eventually, Newcomb was driven away from the house in Murray's car. The house was sealed up from the swarm of press outside, and Marilyn's body was taken to the morgue. And now it's time to talk about the most obvious evidence of Kennedy family involvement, the cover-up. Looking at all this evidence, it's undeniable that almost every key witness involved in Marilyn's death either lied, buried evidence, or stayed silent during the official investigation in 1962. But the people involved were such a diverse, seemingly unrelated group. Doctors, police, coroners, ambulance drivers, even a housekeeper and a handyman. Why would they all conspire together to cover up a death? There are very few figures in the world who have the kind of power it would take to silence this many people, but one of those few figures happened to be at the scene of the crime that night, Attorney General Robert Kennedy. It's impossible to overstate how powerful the Kennedy family was in the early 60s. They were like the royal family of America. Jack was the overwhelmingly popular president, Bobby was attorney general, and Ted was about to be sworn into the Senate. And the Kennedys weren't above covering up a suspicious death. Just seven years later, in 1969, the family would come under scrutiny for their handling of the Chappaquiddick incident. Ted Kennedy accidentally drove his car off a bridge and fled the scene, leaving a young woman trapped inside. He didn't report the crash to the police, and by the time the car was found the next morning, the young woman had drowned. This morning I entered a plea of guilty to the charge of leaving the scene of an accident. This last week has been an agonizing one for me and for the members of my family. Even though he pled guilty to leaving the scene of an accident and a secretive inquest found probable cause that he was guilty of manslaughter, he didn't spend a day in jail. But there's a world of difference between negligently allowing a woman to drown and purposely injecting a woman with lethal quantities of phenobarbital. The point is, the Kennedy family definitely knew how to work the justice system in their favor. They could have used their influence to cover up evidence in Marilyn Monroe's death, too. It's hard to believe it's a coincidence that two Kennedy security team members 
Captain Hamilton and Sergeant Iannone were at the scene both before and after the police were officially called. To make matters even stranger, the investigation into Marilyn's death would eventually be handled solely by Hamilton and Police Chief Bill Parker, with very little information being shared with the rest of the force. The circumstances of Hamilton's appointment to this case are worth noting. Another officer, Thad Brown, had been leading the investigation, but shortly after Brown brought the police chief evidence that Bobby Kennedy had been seen at the Beverly Hilton Hotel on August 4th, he was removed from the case and replaced by Hamilton. Hamilton and Parker already had a grudge against Thad Brown because of a completely unrelated office politics dispute. So it's possible they didn't want Brown on the case for their own petty reasons. But it's also quite likely that they were purposely obstructing the investigation to gain Bobby Kennedy's favor. In December 1962, Chief Parker took the police department's file on the Marilyn Monroe case to Washington, D.C., where he met with Kennedy on what he called, quote, a matter of mutual interest. That file was never seen again. Parker was allegedly angling to replace J. Edgar Hoover as head of the FBI. But less than a year later... We understand there has been a shooting... A presidential car coming up now. We know it's the presidential car. You can see Mrs. Kennedy's pink suit. There's a Secret Service man, spread eagle, over the top of the car. We understand Governor and Mrs. Connolly are in the car with President and Mrs. Kennedy. We can't see who has been hit, if anybody's been hit, but apparently something is wrong here. Something is terribly wrong. I'm in behind the motorcade, trying to follow them. It looks as though they're going to Parkland Hospital. We're on the road to Parkland at this time. JFK was assassinated in 1963, and his dream of dethroning Hoover died with him. As for James Hamilton, in June 1963, he abruptly resigned from the police force after being personally recommended by Bobby Kennedy for a better-paying, more glamorous job as head of security for the NFL. Okay. There's some compelling circumstantial evidence to suggest a few police officers were involved in a cover-up, but there are other details that require a little bit more explanation. Why would Greenson help Bobby Kennedy kill Marilyn? There are a few possibilities here. The first explanation, in 1983, shortly before his death, Peter Lawford allegedly told biographer C. David Heyman that he had picked up audio of Greenson and Marilyn having sex from the bugs he placed in Marilyn's house. That kind of breach of professional conduct would have ended Greenson's career and possibly put him in jail. Lawford and Bobby used that tape to blackmail Greenson into helping them kill Marilyn. But C. David Heyman has a reputation for making false claims in his books, and by the time this book was published, Lawford was dead, so he wasn't around to dispute what Heyman wrote. That's not very reliable evidence. Mm, True. The second possibility is that Bobby threatened or blackmailed Greenson some other way, possibly with the knowledge of his communist ties. Greenson might have agreed to help get rid of Marilyn in exchange for a promise that his subversive political activities would stay under wraps. Though possible, it still seems a little unlikely that Bobby would recruit Greenson, a man he didn't even know, to help him with something as sensitive as a murder plot. Then there's the last possibility. Greenson didn't intend to kill Marilyn at all, but his attempt to revive her failed. 
and at that point it was in his best interest to stage it as a suicide, so he wasn't blamed for mishandling the adrenaline injection. That sounds the most likely to me. But why did Murray, Jeffries, and Engelberg go along with the cover-up? They were all longtime friends of Greenson. They might have gone along with it just to protect him. Or Kennedy Associates might have threatened them into it. We know Jeffries was afraid he would get the death penalty if he said anything about what happened that night. From her comments later in life, Murray didn't seem to understand why she had to keep quiet, but she realized it was safer not to rock the boat. And what about the ambulance service? Why did they deny sending an ambulance to Marilyn's house? Well, Schaefer Ambulance Service also operated air ambulances, and their planes and helicopters were often used to covertly fly government personnel around the country. Some of their most frequent flyers? The Kennedy family. So, they had an incentive to keep the Kennedys on their side and to protect their reputation for confidentiality. They certainly did. There's still one more possibility to discuss. Even if Bobby Kennedy covered up his role in Marilyn's death, that doesn't mean it was a murder. It's entirely possible that the pills she'd taken throughout the afternoon, the drugs his security guards used to sedate her, and Greenson's failed injection all contributed to her death. Kennedy and Greenson would both still be guilty of manslaughter, but not premeditated murder. That's also possible, and it would fit with the chaos and disorganization of the night's events. Exactly. If there'd been a pre-existing conspiracy to commit murder, they probably would have put together a simpler plan, or at least made sure there were fewer witnesses at the scene. Still, Kennedy's involvement is the only explanation that makes sense when all the evidence is considered. If eyewitnesses are to be believed, he was definitely there, and it's incredibly likely that he contributed to her death. But there's not quite enough to prove a murderous intent. The broader theory that Bobby Kennedy was involved in killing Marilyn Monroe deserves a 9 out of 10. But as for intentional, premeditated murder, we'll give that a 5 out of 10. We've discussed all the major theories, but there are a few more wildcard theories that deserve to be tossed into the ring. Some conspiracy theorists have speculated Marilyn was killed by the CIA, to protect state secrets, including the details of their plot to assassinate Fidel Castro. CIA documents prove that they did, in fact, consider Marilyn a security risk. We also know the CIA was surveilling her house just before her death, but there's no actual physical evidence that the CIA was involved in her death. Here's another one. The FBI killed Marilyn as a threat to the Kennedys. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover famously did not get along with the Kennedy family. But killing an innocent woman isn't the most obvious way to get political leverage over them. And again, there's no evidence that points to FBI involvement in Marilyn's death. It also could have been the Mafia. As we discussed last week, some of the secrets in Marilyn's diary related to the Mafia. And shortly before her death, she was drugged, sexually assaulted, and potentially blackmailed by Mafia associates. All of that's true. Some theorists have even suggested that the Kennedys recruited the Mafia to help them deal with the Marilyn problem. 
That said, we have a whole house full of suspects, but none of them were in the mafia. All considered, we think the most likely explanation is this. Marilyn Monroe's death was an accident caused by a lethal combination of prescription pills and barbiturates forcibly administered by Bobby Kennedy and his associates, as well as a mangled attempt to revive her by Dr. Greenson. Kennedy, Greenson, and their associates, with the assistance of the LAPD Intelligence Division, conspired to cover up the death as a suicide to protect themselves from culpability. The involvement of both Kennedy and Greenson is the only theory that holds up to all the facts, but due to the chaos and disorganization of the night's events, it seems unlikely that it was a premeditated conspiracy to murder. Marilyn's death was a tragedy, but even more tragic was the mishandling of justice that followed it. The investigators disregarded any evidence that didn't fit their suicide theory, and even today, most people disregard that hard evidence because it contradicts the official verdict from 1962. This gets to the issue at the heart of every conspiracy theory. Who do you believe? How do you determine who's telling the truth and who's lying? Out of fear? For self-protection? For fame or money? The truth of Marilyn Monroe's death may be lost to history, with nearly all the key witnesses now long dead and gone, but by digging for the answer, we've found a truth of a different sort. No one is always to be trusted. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. If you want to hear more Conspiracy Theories, you can find us on Apple Podcasts. Tune in, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. Tell us your favorite conspiracy theories on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Join us next Wednesday as we dive into another conspiracy theory. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Conspiracy Theories is written by Kate Gallagher and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Thanks so much for listening to Conspiracy Theories. Here's a reminder that you can find hundreds of thought-provoking episodes, stories you won't hear anywhere else, by following Conspiracy Theories free and only on Spotify.